Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of June 2023. We are about two and a half weeks away from the summer solstice and it has been light. I was a little surprised this past week to notice it was still light after 10. So it seems like always at some point in the year I get a little surprised by the change in daylight, even though uh, it seems like by this time I'd be used to it. But it is nice to have these long uh, days of light to get out and explore and some warmer temperatures. If you are getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Ian Houston. He was joining me from New York, and we recorded this over the internet. He had been here in Sitka about 18 months ago studying sea cucumbers and looking at some of the viruses that are associated with them and running an experiment there. I recorded a conversation with him at that time about his work on CSAR wasting disease. You can find that in my show archives at sitkanature.org slash raven. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with Ian describing the experiment and some of the things they learned uh, from doing that experiment with the sea cucumbers. The focus of that experiment was mostly to understand what happens when uh, you increase uh, microbial activity uh, or you decrease oxygen. And the idea is basically more microbial activity will lead to lower oxygen conditions and how that affects the, the rate at which viruses make new copies of themselves within sea cucumber tissues. Essentially, we sort of divided them up into seven different groups. We had two control groups and the rest were various different sugars, basically organic materials that uh, we hypothesized were in the environment, things like algal-derived uh, sugars. And we also depleted oxygen in one of the, the mesocosms by bubbling dinitrogen gas through, which displaces oxygen. And then we looked to see in the sea cucumbers uh, what happened to this one specific type of virus called the Apostichopus californicus, which is the giant uh, Pacific sea cucumber uh, flavivirus, which was a very attractive target because it's very unique. Uh, we haven't been able to find anything quite similar to it uh, elsewhere. When we came back to the lab in Ithaca, essentially we did a bunch of molecular analyses to quantify the virus. Uh, we were also interested in uh, looking at other correlates with the virus as well, things like protein content of the tissues, uh, lipid content, which tells us a little bit about how healthy the animals are and whether they're investing in reproduction or perhaps just outright growth. And we also looked at bacterial production or microbial activity in those waters of the aquarium as well as on animal surfaces. It does take quite a while to do those analyses, lots and lots of personnel hours and some very new techniques that my lab hasn't really tackled before. But what I can say uh, is that basically what we learned is that the flavivirus of the sea cucumbers is exactly the opposite of what we were expecting. So in any system, uh, we were thinking that, you know, when you have an increased level of the virus, we would expect to see the animals be less healthy, right? So if it's a pathogenic virus, the more of the pathogen, you'd expect the animals to basically be less healthy. What we found was exactly the opposite. And that is that the healthier the animals, the more of this virus they actually had. We successfully caused some health problems for the animals by depleting oxygen, uh, also by the addition of some of the organic substrates that we added. Uh, and in all cases, the animals that basically lost weight the fastest over time were the ones that had the least amount of this virus, which is very contrary to what we were expecting. And so, you know, from an interpretation standpoint, 
what we can probably say is that this virus is not really something which negatively impacts the sea cucumbers. It's probably something that uh, is either just a passenger, uh, so essentially it infects the animals and never causes any symptoms and uh, is just there sort of replicating happily in the healthy host. So that's one possibility. And then the other possibility is that the virus is causing some low level of pathology that we're not just not able to see on the coarse sort of level that we're looking at the sea cucumbers. Oh, and in terms of the different treatments that we use, there really wasn't any sort of big difference uh, between the sugars and the organic matter that we added. But certainly when we depleted oxygen by sort of bubbling nitrogen through it and displacing oxygen, so the oxygen levels were about 20% of normal, uh, then the animals obviously died <laughs> or they became very sick. They, they couldn't breathe. So it's, it was a very sort of revelatory experiment. Uh, as We currently have this out in review at the moment at a scientific journal and peer review. What we're hoping to do next is perhaps to extend it to natural sort of bloom, algal bloom phenomena. And so uh, we're currently sort of recalibrating a little bit to figure out whether it makes sense to do it with sea cucumbers and the flavivirus virus or to work in a different system altogether. Uh, but it's still looking at viruses and the impact of algal blooms and algal derived organic materials and how that might affect viral replication. Well, if I remember correctly, what prompted you to come up here maybe was some folks in the region, maybe it was in Ketchikan, finding lesions on har the sea cucumbers they were harvesting. And so there was some question as to what might be causing those. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So basically, we worked with some Department of Fish and Game scientists uh, who back in 2016, I believe it was, observed sort of this phenomenon where the sea cucumbers, when they were collected uh, during the fishery, uh, they were... Uh, I've forgotten what the what the term is, but basically they release all of the, the inter you know internal contents of the animals by poking them, uh, and then they put them into the refrigerated hold of the boats. And for a very specific period down in Ketchikan, the animals were basically um, turning into slop, <laughs> and uh, they were curious. Then they also observed some lesions on the animals as they were being collected. They also observed some decreases in the field of the entire population, and were wondering if there was some pathogen around. And so that's kind of what led to our initial survey of viruses to see if there was anything different between a healthy and a, uh, a lesioned uh, sea cucumber. And that's how we found this flavivirus. We sort of didn't go after this necessarily as potentially the, the agent responsible for that, simply because we did actually find the flavivirus in totally normal animals as well from down there. But oftentimes when you have animals that are infected with a pathogen alongside those which uh, you know, and they're showing disease signs alongside totally normal ones. The normal ones will actually have the pathogen as well. They'll be infected by it, but they're just not sick enough for us to notice. And so that's kind of the, the angle that we took with it. So it was actually, it was definitely, the impetus was because of a disease event, an unknown disease event. We still don't know what caused that. Um, sea cucumbers do get these things called skin ulceration diseases through a variety of different um, uh, we call them insults. So basically environmental changes, bacterial infections, abrasion. Uh, but we're not, we're not too sure what caused that back in 2016. And there haven't been too many reports of it since. So um, perhaps it was just a limited, you know, thing that happened. Yeah, no end of mysteries, I suppose, uh, with, with stuff out in the natural world. And I guess I find myself wondering, you, know, you mentioned that the this flavor virus was more common in or more abundant in healthy sea cucumbers and which the opposite of what you would expect if it was a, a, 
a, causing a disease or causing a problem. Um, and I guess, I guess the, the thought would be that when a sea cucumber is healthy or an animal more generally, their immune system is functioning fully and they're able to attack and, and remove those viruses much more readily than they can when they're sick and their and their body's just trying to, you know, maintain even the very basic of uh, function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can't, doesn't have the energy or the ability to fight off these viruses. So the viruses are able to replicate more readily. Was that, is that kind of the, the underlying sort of thought about why it would be more common in a, in a, a, a weakened sea uh, um, cucumber? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, sea cucumbers, like all echinoderms, their basic immunity is twofold. So first off, they have, you know, anatomical barriers. It's called the innate immune system. Um, it basically is pre- preventing microbes and viruses from invading. And so in the, you know, sea cucumbers, that's, you know, the cells on the surface of, of the animal uh, as sort of an anatomical barrier. And then you have some types of, I don't want to say adaptive immunity. Adaptive immunity is sort of white blood cells in mammals. Um, it basically is sort of a, an immune system that learns from previous exposure. So for example, when you get a vaccine, uh, you can train your immune system to recognize pathogens. We've all pretty much done that with COVID now, you know. Um, but with sea cucumbers, they don't actually have that. But what they do have are specialized cells uh, called salamocytes that basically float around the internal part of the animal within that sort of uh, salamic cavity, all of that water in the middle of it. And they wander around and they look for foreign entities, foreign, you know, uh, viruses and bacteria and other particles, and they gobble them up and basically inactivate them. Um, they're called salamocytes. And, uh, you know, with a virus like this, if, or any pathogen for that matter, um, if that salamocyte activity is impaired, um, that can actually lead to more sort of abundance of those microbes, those pathogenic microbes. And so you would expect to see them increase, you know, in abundance in uh, diseased animals. Uh, One converse to that is that we now know that, you know, at least from human perspective, a lot of the damage or a lot of the disease symptoms that are generated by viral infection come from the immune system of, you know, the person that's or the organism that's infected. You know, so for example, you can be infected by, say, COVID, uh, Corona, SARS-CoV-2, uh, most of the damage that happens because of that is actually your immune system overreacting to it and causing, um, you know, swelling, it causes necrosis, etc. Um, and so, you know, one counter to our observation is perhaps that, you know, uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect a linear increase in the amount of pathogen relative to the disease severity. It might be sort of a, a hump-shaped distribution where somewhere in the middle you've got the most pathogen and then as you uh, have more and more diseased animals, you might find that um, it's actually a little bit lower. But certainly you would expect, uh, you wouldn't expect the exact trend that we found, which was linear and perfect, <laughs> which was basically healthy animals, you know, basically lots and lots of this virus. And then uh, totally, you know, unhealthy animals were, there was almost none. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I, I wonder, I mean, viruses by their nature seem challenging to study in, in many respects, um, being so small and needing, I guess they need a, a living host to, to reproduce and, and those sorts of things. Um, is it, a, so you mentioned, we tend to think about viruses as, as being pathogens. This one seems like it's innocuous. 
mm-hmm. uh, is it is there are, are there situations or would you even be able to to identify if there were situations where a virus was actually uh, a, a net benefit to the organism that it was uh, on in yeah that's that's a really good question so you know most of our knowledge about viruses at least from a clinical setting so from humans and animals uh, through veterinary approaches come from those things which are disease causing so we tend to focus upon finding um, you know pathogens things that actually generate disease but what's not really well appreciated is that there is an absolutely enormous diversity of viruses out there in completely asymptomatic totally normal animals um, that basically do not appear to generate any disease at all. Um, they are basically, you know, uh, infecting or, or associated with, we often use because we don't have any evidence that they're actually replicating, uh, associated with totally healthy uh, individuals. And a lot of the time, um, you know, that's a good strategy from an ecological standpoint, because why would you kill your host necessarily? You know, um, you basically want to reproduce and put out new copies of yourself. The more, the less lethal that can be, the better and spread around a population. And so um, there are not really any, um, from at, least, at least none I can think of from a human perspective of completely benign or perhaps beneficial viruses, which is something I'll talk about in just a second. But, you know, all I can say is that, you know, we recently did an estimate of the total diversity of viruses, uh, associ- or viruses with RNA and their genomes associated with healthy uh, invertebrates or echinoderms in this case. And we're talking like, seven or 800 viruses that can infect these animals and none of them appear to be tightly associated with any negative condition, which means that either they're totally commensal or don't do anything to their host or uh, perhaps are beneficial. The question of beneficial viruses is something which, um, you know, is, is somewhat controversial. There are viruses that we think can actually become more replicative when they, um, when other viruses are causing negative impacts. So in other words, you can have one virus that comes along that causes a lesion on a fish or some sort of tumor on a fish. And then another virus, uh, which happens to be in the same fish, can come along and induce all of the, um, the mechanisms by which the fish will get rid of that tumor. So it's basically like, a, I don't want to say cancer curing, but it, it has the same impact. It's basically excising tissue that is otherwise cancerous. So that's the one of the only examples I can think of, but there's probably many others out there. It's just we haven't really been focusing on them because, of course, most of the, you know, the impetus for doing virology in, an, in at least in natural settings or even in, you know, human or, or veterinary settings is to look for things that are causing problems. And there's been very, very few studies of uh, viruses that either aren't doing anything or uh, potentially might be benefiting their host. So based on the numbers that you mentioned there for echinoderms, it seems like realistically, we might think that only a very tiny fraction of viruses are pathogenic in a, in a, you know, clearly, clearly and obviously detrimental way. Yeah. I I think that's a, you know, it's something which has, again, hasn't been studied extensively, but that's certainly my feeling is that you know, amongst the vast diversity of viruses out there in nature, um, relatively few of them actually cause any noticeable or gross disease in their hosts. And very few of them uh, of those are actually totally pathogenic and causing sort of mass mortality. Um, the vast majority of viruses that are out there don't do anything at all or have roles that we, we haven't really 
uh, you know, yet elucidated through study. But uh, it's quite possible that the, you know, as a phenomenon, most viruses are, are pretty much benign. Um, that certainly would be would be something I'd get behind <laughs> based on our extensive sort of surveys of uh, marine invertebrates. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. I guess the other aspect is that, you know, sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of aspect of, uh, of viruses where if, if there are viruses that are, are attacking bacteria, that in turn would have a, a negative effect on on uh, a host then those those viruses are helpful and i guess i guess there could be a, a reason evolutionarily speaking for a host to somehow maintain a repository if you will of these viruses that that um you know attack mm -hmm. something in turn which would be attacking them i don't know how that would work in practice but evolution is pretty creative in its way, I suppose. <laughs> totally, totally. And, and that also speaks to something um, which I don't know of any examples of this happening in, in natural systems, but certainly, you know, there's there's viruses which will infect uh, bacteria, uh, bacteriophage. And sometimes when you get, say, infections by really totally pathogenic bacteria, things like Acinetobacter baumannii, which is a um, basically a occurs in seafood and it could cause massive systemic infection in humans. Um, it's really hard to treat with antibiotics, um, but you can actually uh, do a survey for viruses of that acinetobacter and then introduce uh, that whatever virus you've managed to find, those bacteriophage, and basically cure those uh, infections. So there's some really fantastic work done by a colleague, Forrest Rower, uh, at San Diego State University. Uh, basically saving lives through doing that. Um, and, you know, I don't know of any example of where animals specifically, say, hold on to phage in any way uh, to prevent, you know, infection by bacteria. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, so that's, you know, crossing over between viruses and bacteria. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, however, if there are viruses which are evolutionarily have been gained by animals as a way of preventing infection by other eukaryotic or, or you know, uh, fungi and other things which are more similar to us in bacteria uh, infections, or indeed other viruses uh, that are infecting um, the host. But uh, certainly the phage, the phage research is, is fascinating. And, um, you know, it's been known for over 100 years. It sort of gained in popularity in the early 1900s as a way of treating very uh, nasty bacterial infections particularly in the former Soviet Union and uh, Georgia. Uh, but then it sort of fell out of favor with the advent of antibiotics. And now we're seeing more antibiotic resistant bacteria. Uh, phage therapy is coming back online as a way of tackling that, which I think is super exciting. Yeah, I'd never, never heard of that. And it's like, how do they, how do they find the, the viruses and and I guess, I mean, do you have to isolate them and then, and then introduce them in some fashion? Clearly, they need to be introduced in some fashion, but like, how yeah. does that how does that work? Well, I'm I'm thinking of uh, well from the colleagues that I know who work in phage therapy. Essentially, you know, you can go into any environment and try and find a virus that's infecting pretty much any bacterium. So, a big source of phage of uh, pathogenic bacteria comes from sewage, um, uh, cattle, livestock yards. Um, you know, very, very nutrient rich environments which support large bacterial abundances and where many of these opportunistic pathogens thrive. And so their viruses are probably going to be out there. 
Um, and in terms of you know what you do is you essentially take a sample from that environment. Uh, you have a culture of the bacterium of interest. Uh, you filter out all of the bacteria and basically everything else aside from viruses from that sample from the environment. You incubate it together, and the idea is that the the phage will actually absorb to the bacterial culture uh, and cause an infection within those bacterial cells. You plate them on a plate and you look for zones on that plate where uh, the phage has actually killed the bacterium. So it's called a viral plaque. Uh, it's it's see-through basically. And then you punch that out and you can actually cultivate those viruses to huge, huge quantities. And it's my understanding, although don't quote me on this, that um, you can introduce those viruses either you know orally or I've at least one story that I'm aware of with a really nasty systemic untreatable infection by Acinetobacter was actually intravenously introducing these phage, uh, which then were very, very successful at curing this particular patient. So um, it seems weird sort of uh, injecting, if you will, uh, viruses uh, into your system, but those viruses can't actually infect you. There's no mechanism for that to happen, but they will definitely target bacteria that are floating around your system. So it's a, it's a promising area of, of treatment for things that um, seem to be on the rise, which are anti antibiotic resistant bacteria. Ah, huh. well, it makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that that was something that was done a hundred years ago, uh, and then and then with the rise of antibiotics, was you know I guess antibiotics were probably cheaper to manufacture and and uh, produce and effective enough to to not need the more complicated. Um, process of, of isolating those those bacteriophages and and uh, pure I mean uh, concentrating them I guess in, in so they could be effective. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. I mean, amongst the first, you know, the first antibiotic penicillin um, that could be manufactured very very widely. Uh, it was used to treat, um, I believe, it was soldiers in the Second World War. Um, and you know, it was highly successful, but then it pretty much everything became resistant to it over time, you know, uh, and the search for new antibiotics usually involves, uh, you know, screening pathogenic bacteria against extracts of all manner of plants and animals and, um, you know, including many deep sea invertebrates. They're looking there for novel compounds, which might inhibit bacterial growth. Um, and you know, whereas phage, you know, you have to go through this process of, uh, essentially, working out viruses that uh, might infect it through screening, you know, environmental samples coming up with, you can't just do one virus because what happens over time is that the virus and the host uh, will sort of do this, what we call a red queen effect. So basically um, the virus will, uh, or the host will adapt immunity to the virus over time. And so you need to add a cocktail of a few different types of viruses. So I, I've heard the number five to 10 uh, kicked around and you make a cocktail, and that's what you treat the infection with. So it's a lot more labor intensive, um, but you know it's it is highly successful in many cases uh, at treating antibiotic resistant infections. Um, and you know I think it was just industrialization of it was was rather difficult, and it was easier just to synthesize things like penicillin uh, back in the day. But um, certainly a lot of the the antibiotics, you know. Uh, that were sort of in place in the 1980s, they, they currently don't prescribe them even anymore just because virtually all pathogenic bacteria are resistant to them. <laughs> so, uh, whereas viruses are continuously evolving and so you, there's an unlimited number of potential viruses to uh, kill off these infections. So I think we're gonna see it more and more on the rise in the future. 
Hmm. And are viruses something, I mean, I guess it, it seems like there is some work done with actual, um, it, uh, for lack of a better word, engineering of viruses. Um, is that something that folks are, are looking at or that might be well outside your, your area, I suppose? Um, well, I mean, it, it is possible to synthesize virus uh, particles. You can basically take viruses that are already there and mutate them, or um, you can use, you know, various um, what we call knockouts. You, there's this thing called CRISPR-Cas9, which you can use to alter their genomes uh, so that you can study whether it's more or less susceptible, uh, whether the hosts are more or less susceptible to it, so work out what a genes are responsible for pathogenesis. Um, I say, you know, synthesizing a new virus entirely, um, I, 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 that's, that is kind of outside of what uh, I'm familiar with, but certainly um, I would say, given this sort of unlimited expanse of natural viruses that are out there, um, it would seemingly be a huge task to basically synthesize something de novo and, you know, design it around a bacterium when you can just grow it on a plate and, <laughs> you know, punch it out and you know, see that it will kill the bacterium. But um, I guess it is possible. I just am uh, um, not familiar with anybody who's actively doing that at the moment. Yeah, it seems viruses are, I mean, I guess it's easy to sort of, I mean, they're tiny, so we don't see them. And, and we mainly focus on when they're making us sick or something we care about sick. Uh, but there's this whole world of diversity where I guess, like, what are the tools that DNA, I imagine, is, is it? been a game changer for, you know, environmental study of viruses and just being able to look and see what's there based on what DNA gets amplified and through those sorts of processes. Um, but yeah, how do you, how do you like study these in the wild, so to speak? Well, I think our knowledge about viral diversity um, in the natural environment has gone through two major um, evolutionary steps. All right. So uh, back in 1986, Carrie Mullis invented the polymerase chain reaction, which basically allows us to selectively amplify and look at the DNA sequence of short stretches of DNA. Um, so PCR polymerase chain reaction is used pretty extensively um, in a multitude of different applications, everything from forensics to paternity tests to whatever. Um, and that was a huge step because it was the first time that, you know, we were able to take a natural sample of microorganisms, including viruses, <clears throat> and provided we know something about their DNA sequence to begin with, um, which we did actually, because they had done some DNA sequencing of, of phages and apply, you know, PCR to that to study how many different types there are. Um, that was one crucial step uh, from about 1986 to more or less about 2000. Um, and then we had this huge, um, sort of advance with sequencing technologies that came out in the mid aughts, uh, something called pyrosequencing came around and that enabled us to basically increase the number of sequences that we were able to look at by about 10,000 fold. Um, and what that enabled us to do was to essentially take whole viral communities. So all the virus particles concentrated from a particular environment, shear them up into tiny little pieces and then sequence them and then reconstruct what those genomes were. Um, and that was a real watershed because it revealed that there is a huge diversity of viruses present in natural environments and in tissues of animals. And uh, that was some work done by Maya Breitbart, uh, who's my collaborator at the moment, as well as uh, Forrest Rauer down in San Diego State. 
So um, that was that was a huge thing. And then there was also another big advance that came along uh, called Illumina sequencing, which came about five or six years after Pyrus sequencing. And that's gone instead of 10,000 fold, it's more like, uh, oh gosh, 10 million fold uh, increase in our ability to look at DNA. So, you know, huge evolutionary steps, at least for scientists, uh, in order to be able to analyze viral communities. And all of those have just revealed this huge diversity of viruses associated with any environment or any tissue of any organism. Um, so that, you know, it, I'd say there's been a few other important steps. So for example, you know, viruses can have both DNA or RNA as their genome. So we have DNA, the DNA gets transcribed to RNA, that RNA becomes proteins, right? It's called the central dogma. Um, viruses can shortcut that and simply have RNA as their genome. And then basically just go straight into protein synthesis um, within infected cells. So that's about half of all the viruses do that, including most of the important pathogens. Things like SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. Um, and being able to work with RNA uh, through some of the improvements with uh, things like reverse transcriptase PCR and um, amplification approaches for looking at, you know, amplifying RNA to the point that we can sequence it have really helped things too. So yeah, quite, quite a few new tools online that have facilitated our, our studies and made it a lot easier to identify, you know, viruses in general. And like I said, all of them point to a huge diversity of, of uh, what we call the viral biosphere um, out there. Things that, you know, subcellular, these things obviously don't have cells. They're tiny little nucleic acids or DNA and RNA, which are coated with proteins. Um, they're not necessarily alive, although it depends who you talk to, um, but um, they're out there and they're obviously doing something. So yeah, pretty, pretty important steps along the way. So you take a sample, like in your case, maybe of seawater or of tissue and somehow concentrate down the, the, the viral elements of it, or you just, uh, I guess in the case of water, you definitely need to, to uh, you know, it's too much volume there of, yeah. of just water. Uh, but in tissue, maybe, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of water in tissue as well. And, and then somehow concentrate that down and then, and then are getting like, you just run it through these processes you were describing and like 10 million fold sounds like an immense amount of data that must come out of, out of that. If there's, a, unless you're dealing with just incredibly small samples where you don't have very much stuff in there. Um, so it seems like there must be a lot of data processing as well. Lots, lots and lots. In fact, we were, when we still are limited, um, not so much by the amount of DNA sequence uh, that we're able to obtain so much as the computing power to analyze it. Um, in fact, there was a point there, you know, in the early 2000s when uh, you had to ignore 99% of your data because you just couldn't in a reasonable time or with reasonable computational power interpret it. <laughs> so basically, um, you know, what, what happens is, you know, with it, just to get back to, you know, seawater, we uh, will filter out all of the bacteria, larger microorganisms uh, using a very fine pore size, something like a 0.2 micron or 200 nanometer. That leaves all of the, or lets all of the viruses pass straight through. We then concentrate that, uh, which we use various different approaches to do that. But ultimately, we're trying to enrich the number of viruses per unit volume of, of seawater uh, by hundreds to thousands of folds. Uh, we use something called tangential flow ultrafiltration in my lab, which uh, basically makes viral soup out of it. And then after that, we extract the nucleic acids, so RNA or DNA, 
and then we sequence it, and then that results in this huge amount of uh, sequence data um, through Illumina sequencing. With tissues of animals, it's a little bit more um, involved. So essentially, we take the tissues, we grind them up um, in a mortar and pestle or some other homogenizer. Uh, we then filter out you know, the larger cells, uh, and the idea is the viruses will be liberated from the tissues by the when we grind them. Uh, we filter out all the cells and other debris that's in there. Uh, we then have to treat them with um, basically enzymes that get rid of DNA and RNA uh, within that you know, homogenate or the filtered homogenate. And this seems a little counterintuitive because you're going to be looking at you know, vir viral DNA and RNA down the line. But because the, the viral DNA and RNA is within that protein shell, it's actually protected from the enzymes. And so what you're doing is you're using those enzymes to digest away all of the host DNA and RNA uh, that came along for uh, the ride. They're in the same size fraction as viruses, and they were released by uh, homogenizing the tissues. And then after it's been treated with uh, those things, enzymes, basically things like uh, DNAs and RNAs, uh, those are just DNA and RNA degrading enzymes. We then go through the same process of sequencing and, um, you know, getting a, a bucket load of data at the end of the day is always fun. Uh, but, you know, we have to first off get rid of all of the material, which isn't of good quality. Uh, we then assemble it into these um, what we call contiguous fragments. So basically lining up all of the DNA and matching it up so that we have one continuous DNA sequence for a, a viral genome and then interpreting it by comparing it against uh, other known viruses or genes uh, of known function uh, to figure out what they're actually doing in there. So it's a, it's a long process, requires a lot of computational power, uh, but I will say that it has increased exponentially our speed and efficiency with which we can do that over the last decade, 15 years. So uh, promising time. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I imagine, yeah, a lot, lot's probably changed since you got started in the field and and uh, in terms of what you're able to do. Um, the, are there viruses within cells and in, in tissue and so forth? Or are you finding those in the homogenization process? Is that breaking up cells sufficiently that anything that would be inside would, would then be accessible to your process? Well, we believe so, yeah. Like, um, you know, most of the viruses, sure, there's some which are sort of in spaces between cells within tissues, but most of them we expect to be within the cells themselves, within the cytoplasm of cells. And we assume that we do a good job with homogenizing those tissues so that they're all liberated. Um, whether that's the case or not is unknown, but I will say we do come across a fairly, fairly frequently um, viruses that basically don't have a capsid. Um, so these are ones that don't exist outside of the cells themselves, uh, things like mitoviruses and endoRNA viruses. Um, and these are that tells us that our the way by which we're grinding up these tissues and liberating them is actually pretty successful. Um, so it would be alarming if we didn't see those and we only saw, say, bacteriophage <laughs> in there. You know, those those can infect, uh, you know, the animal tissues. They're probably just, you know, on the surface or, or uh, somehow incidentally incorporated into our libraries. But... Um, yeah, most, most of the viruses we presume are actually infecting cells at the time that we homogenize those tissues. Interesting. Yeah, so you, you mentioned that you're able to do things a lot faster. And I know the last time that we spoke for my radio show, um, we talked a lot about the work that you did on 
sea star wasting, which was, you know, to come in and try and figure out what's, what's happening here. And since that time, I know you, uh, you mentioned before we started recording here, but also I had seen, seen your name pop up in, in a news article around uh, work investigations done into a mass die-off of sea urchins in the Caribbean, as I understand it. And so it sounds like, you know, maybe, I, I don't know if without the tools that you have now, if you'd have been able to do that work in the way that, that you were, um, but it, it seemed like that was kind of a, I mean, I didn't know virology was a jet setting lifestyle, but it seems like you get to travel around to places and <laughs> at least when these hotspot events come up and people are like, what's going on here? Um, you get to come in with your team and, and try and figure it out. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I will say, you know, for a long time we used, um, that basically early 1980s, a lot of the urchins around the Caribbean died off, um, in a pretty spectacular mortality event that looked a lot like some sort of pathogen. Um, it basically spread from site to site along shores, along major currents and, um, you know, it caused 98% mortality in the region it forever changed the landscape of, uh, the Caribbean because basically once you remove urchins, which are dominant herbivores, uh, corals become smothered by algae. And so, um, you know, it, they just never were able to recover. And so the reefs down in, in the Caribbean right now look a lot different from what they did, uh, before about 1983, uh, simply by the loss of these urchins. Um, so you know, we use that as sort of a, a rationale and we never, we never figured out what caused that 1980s die off. All right. So that was kind of a big mystery, but an example of, you know, where you can't mass mortalities can cause problems. Um, so when things started to die off in April of last year, we sort of jumped at the opportunity to become involved working with a huge number of collaborators across the region in Puerto Rico and Grenada, um, in the Virgin islands in the Caribbean Netherlands. Um, and we had the tools ready to go. I mean, these tools are now well-developed. Um, we're able to sort of apply them very, very quickly. Um, and so what happened was uh, we got the call. We were working with some scientists in Puerto Rico, uh, waiting for it to show up. We organized in very short order um, to sample these animals and process them in a way which we could actually do molecular biology in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands and Ceiba in the Caribbean Netherlands. Uh, we then sort of got those samples back to the lab in Ithaca and immediately jumped in and did some, some of the sequencing uh, based approaches. Uh, when we initially got the data back from that, you know, we were going after it fairly agnostically. We were thinking it could be anything. I mean, it could have been a weird patch of water that was moving through that had unusual toxins in it, for example. It could have been an algal bloom. It could have been a bacterial infection, a eukaryotic uh, micro, like a fungal infection or a, a virus. So we, we started out just by doing everything, <laughs> to look at everything. And uh, our initial screen of that data was a little bit disappointing because um, there really wasn't anything that we could identify. We, you know, definitively is like, well, that's smoking gun. You know, that's what's causing it. Um, it wasn't until we started to examine um, some of the, the gene libraries that we had from the host that we realized that there was another parasite in there called Phylaster apodigitiformis, which is a long name, but basically uh, it's a type of ciliate, a scutico ciliate, um, that has caused mass mortality of fish in aquaculture and potentially some coral disease in the past. And we went after that with quantitative molecular tools. Uh, before any of that, I remember when we got the data back, I was like, huh, that's not supposed to be in there. 
I actually went down to the lab. We had some uh, blood or Islamic fluid samples of the urchins in the fridge that were preserved for microscopy. I put it down the microscope and before I even, you know, reached the microscope eyepieces, I could see the, it was absolutely loaded with this scuticocilia, uh, which, you know, just pays sometimes just to look down a microscope because I could have saved a whole bunch of money and time from doing sequencing for that, to be honest. So, but, uh, so we went through and we did more sort of quantitative molecular stuff. So looking at DNA, um, quantifying the organism in healthy and diseased and uh, at reference sites, which are well away from the disease front. And uh, essentially we found it, it was 100% tied to the disease in the field. It was not in any of the reference samples and it was, you know, 100% or very, very heavily enriched in the diseased animals compared to the, uh, the healthy ones at the same sites. Um, and then just by sheer good fortune with that, um, we managed to work with scientists or managers down in Florida to cultivate the microbe as soon as it hit the Florida Keys, which we were waiting for about three weeks for that to happen because we knew that it was creeping northwards. And one day in early June, uh, Bill Sharp and Gabe Delgado at the Fish and Wildlife uh, in Marathon in Florida were out there and they saw a diseased urchin. They grabbed it. They put it into culture media, sent it back to me in Ithaca by FedEx. Uh, fortunately, things did not get delayed in uh, Memphis on the way through, which happens a lot. And we were able to culture this bug. Um, and we confirmed that with DNA. <coughs> the exciting thing that happened after that is within three or four days, we were talking with the Florida Aquarium, who had a captive breeding program for uh, this particular species, Diadema antelarum. And they were willing to offer up 20 juvenile uh, totally naive aquaculture raised uh, specimens to do a challenge experiment where we can add the pathogen to them in aquariums and then see how they respond. So we raced down to Florida, University of South Florida, working with Maya Breitbart and Chris Kellogg at the U.S. Geological Survey uh, in St. Petersburg. And we did this experiment and within four days of starting it, 60% of the urchins that we treated with this ciliate um, basically dropped all their spines and died. And none of the control ones did. All right. So we had really, really solid evidence that's basically saying it's a pathogen. Uh, we proved Koch's posture. So huge study. Um, it has basically it waned a little bit at the end of uh, summer last year in the region after wiping out 90%, 95% in some cases, the urchins uh, around the Caribbean. Um, we believe that something very similar is going on in the Mediterranean right now a few months after that and potentially through into the Red Sea. There was a paper that came out by an excellent scientist in Israel, um, Omri Bronstein, which looked at diadema mortality in the Mediterranean, potentially in the Red Sea as well. So it's quite possible that this uh, phylaster, which is a, you know, a parasitic scuticociliate, is somehow moving around the world, um, but it's through mechanisms that we don't yet understand. And we, you know, we're still working on how to treat it. We don't know exactly um, how we can get rid of it if you have an infected urchin um, or, you know, it poses a great deal of threats to aquaculture facilities as well and aquariums. So lots still to be learned about it, but it was certainly an exciting thing to do um, at the time. So I had to drop things somewhat with uh, the sea cucumbers in Alaska to uh, at least allocate some resources and, and personnel to do that. But I think it was worth it because what we're learning from that is actually guiding our understanding of disease process and the echinoderms in general. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the you mentioned that it's the same ciliate that infects fish as well. 
Can be, yeah. Yeah. Um, its closest relative is a type of ciliate which is isolated from pufferfish eggs uh, in East Asia. And we've since found it in a few different places as well uh, through searching databases that are not fish. Uh, so these are uh, surfaces of animals. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mainly it's believed to be a fish pathogen. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, fish and urchins don't seem that closely related. So uh, it's interesting that it, it is able to impact both of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this particular type of ciliate is called a histophagus ciliate. So it eats tissues of its host. <clears throat> you know, all ciliates uh, eat microorganisms to some degree or another. So they thrive in the natural environment just on bacteria, uh, phytoplankton, that kind of thing. And uh, some of these ciliates also can also consume tissues of their host, uh, particularly living tissues of their host. And so there's some sort of dual role of this uh, Scutica ciliate for living in the environment. We believe it might have a reservoir out there somewhere, maybe in fish, maybe in other invertebrates. And then uh, it switches into sort of a pathogenic mode to, to attack diadema. Again, for reasons we don't really understand at the moment, all, all we know is it did cause the disease. Uh, but we're working, hopefully, in the future to figure out what the triggers are for it and how it might move around. But uh, we need more people to work on it. <laughs> that, is there any way of determining whether it's the same cause of the 80s die-off? Or, I mean, I guess they would have had to have saved samples or something. So this, this actually was... Um, so in addition to the paper we had that came out, there was a what's known as a focus article, um, which basically highlights important findings of the paper. And that was written uh, by a couple of colleagues uh, who are coral reef scientists. And in that paper, um, which is just basically a review or a, a you know a, a focus feature, they did say that we had solved uh, the 1980s die-off. I actually completely disagree with that. Um, I think that there really is no way we can understand whether this this ciliate was actually responsible for it. And we may never know what caused it back in the early 1980s. There were no specimens collected of diseased animals at the time. Um, they There were actually some, but they went missing uh, or they were lost during hurricanes in the region. Uh, their freezers died or something. So um, we have consulted with uh, the experts who analyzed those samples from a veterinary diagnostic standpoint. And what they said is that they didn't see any ciliates uh, at the time. So it's unlikely that it's the same thing, in my opinion. Um, we are able to go back in time a little bit with some museum specimens from the same species around the areas at the same time um, and look to see whether there are, you know, similar ciliates there. Uh, we're still working on those at the moment. We have actually worked with the Smithsonian uh, and we're hoping to have those samples analyzed pretty soon. But even if we do detect it there, we, we can't say for sure that it was, you know, in any way responsible for that disease. Um, so perhaps that one will have to remain a bit of a mystery, but it does tell us what can happen in today's world and moving into the future. Yeah, it's something I sometimes wonder about is the... It's always difficult. I think it came up a little bit when we were speaking about the sea star wasting on the on the last time when we spoke, that there were some historical records suggestive that there was some sorts of die-offs, maybe not to the extent that happened along the West Coast in, I guess, 2013 and, and beyond, but at least at least uh, in, in some locations, uh, some sort of die-off. And, you know, always, 
I guess begs the question when we see an event like this, like you like happened with these sea urchins in the Caribbean uh, this past year and back in the eighties, you know, how, how regular or how natural is this in terms of like, is it something that happens that just rarely happens, but has been happening forever, essentially, since these ecosystems have been in place? Or is it something that is specifically a result of uh, human human activities? And in the case of introduced species, you know, sometimes that's pretty clear. There's a species that uh, there's a species of isopod, for example, that uh, is native to Asia, East Asian coastline, and it infects the ghost shrimp along the West Coast. And it seems to just kill them off entirely mm. over a, a few years. And it's been moving up the West Coast. And I spoke with John Chapman uh, a while back when he was in Sitka, you know, and they found a few of the isopods infecting the ghost shrimp here. But it basically uh, takes over there, makes them they can't reproduce anymore, essentially, when it infects them. And it'll infect essentially all of them, mm. uh, given enough time to to establish. And and so it moved up the West Coast. So that one clearly was a result of, of humans introducing through bilge water or something. And I could imagine that happening with the ciliate as, as, you know, if it gets into the bilge water and somebody is, is pumping that out mm. uh, elsewhere, you know, things can get moved around. But more generally, it's like, it, it seems like it's a challenging question to, to ask for rare events that that might happen like how natural is this and how much of it is effective of our activities and i guess it doesn't have to be a clean yes or no either way it can be a mix i suppose but yeah and i think you hit the nail on the head there so basically um <clears throat> you know clearly we're having an impact on the oceans i mean there's no question that whether it be through climate change or through uh facilitated movement of things uh from areas into other areas, invasive species. I mean, clearly we're doing that quite a bit and that can have very detrimental impacts upon the ecosystems. And, you know, in context of a ciliate like this, which may, you know, exist in surfaces, it seems to like slightly fresher water than uh, total seawater. Um, it's entirely possible that we've facilitated this movement uh, around um, in terms of like, you know, temperature change, we don't really know uh, how that interacts with uh, these specific organisms that are dying off. Um, echinoderms in general are considered a boom bust uh, group of organisms. So they undergo these rapid swings of like huge population increases and then huge population decreases. And they've been occurring for as long as the fossil record can tell us. Um, you find these strata with thousands and thousands of starfish and other echinoderms and uh, they're absent from, you know, a short while after that. So um, I think I think the answer is we probably, it's a natural thing for them to do this. Um, you have big populations that will get wiped out and then another species will come along. But I definitely think that humans have played a role in either spreading these things around, whatever pathogenic agent it is, or, you know, as we're seeing in the Anthropocene, you know, increasing carbon dioxide emissions and acidification, deoxygenation, more stratification in the oceans will definitely contribute to um, the ways in which the pathogen and the host interact. And, you know, it's entirely possible that some of these disease events are being exacerbated by, by climate change. Uh, but once again, you know, um, distinct research on that has been somewhat lacking. Um, and in terms of, you know, the current event in the Caribbean, it was pretty cut and dried um, what was responsible for it. Thank goodness. Uh, you know, Sea Star Waste and I worked on for eight years trying to figure out what was going on and still no 
consensus. I mean, we have some great ideas as to what it is, um, but it's difficult to explain everything uh, for that big event that happened. And, you know, at least with the Caribbean urchins, it was, you know, really, really obvious. <laughs> and now the focus is definitely upon finding ways to prevent it from moving around. Um, I believe that's that should be the focus now. A lot of people ask, where did it come from? Um, so what I will say is that I don't really care. Um, I think that it's sort of irrelevant to be looking at potential sources uh, with the exception of potentially mitigating those uh, from being introduced again. But um, I, you know, the fact is it's there. It's kind of like the COVID, uh, you know, once it's there, you're, you're better off trying to address what, you know, how to mitigate it rather than trying to sort of uh, figure out where it came from, to be honest. Um, but so we don't know, we don't know where Phylaster actually came from, uh, but uh, we're trying to work to basically prevent it from infecting other populations around the world now. So hopefully, hopefully we get there. <laughs> so is there a concern that it could infect other species of sea urchins? And is it a, a warm water thing or would it potentially even move into more temperate waters? So what we do know is that, you know, only diadema, which is belongs to a group of urchins that has hollow spines, um, is affected. And that hollow spine feature of them is what probably makes them the most susceptible to this thing. So if we look at the colonization of the ciliate over time, we notice that basically the ciliate enters into these hollow parts in the middle of the spines, it colonizes there, it then we believe that it's sequential, that it then infects the muscle tissues around the base of the spines. And then it starts to invade the epidermis of the animal, making its way through the, uh, the test or the, the shell, which is inside the animal, and then into the, uh, the very middle of it. And with, without those hollow spines, it would be remarkable if this thing caused uh, disease uh, in other species. And it is really only the diadema, the diademidae that have these hollow spines. So the other species that are affected by whatever it is that's going on in the Middle East and um, in the Caribbean, that's another species called Diadema setosum. And there's also another uh, species, Diadema africanum, and there's also Mexicanum. Um, there's other genera of uh, Diademidae, uh, Astropyga is one, uh, Echinothrix is another. Uh, those are more common in the Indo-Pacific, uh, or at least Echinothrix is. Uh, Astropyga is all throughout the Caribbean, and it's not really that abundant, so we don't really notice it as much. Um, but I think other species are probably pretty much immune to it. Um, I know the $64 million question, though, is uh, was it associated with sea star wasting disease? Um, and the short answer is that maybe. We'll see. Uh, we're still working on that. Uh, ciliates have been known to cause disease in sea stars in the past. There's something called Archidophrya uh, stellarum, which is actually a, um, has affected pisasters on the West Coast since the early 1990s. And that belongs to the same group as this um, pilaster. But um, we're still working to understand whether, you know, it was there at all uh, between 2013 and 20, say, 16, when the mass mortality happened. And, um, we're, yeah, we, we should have more information on that in the next six months to a year. <laughs> mm. Ongoing work, it seems, um, I guess it's part of what makes it interesting is that it's complicated and it's a puzzle to, to try and figure out. I suppose it's satisfying to have some things come out readily, but uh, but if everything was easy, then maybe it wouldn't be quite as interesting. Yeah, <laughs> interpreting uh, complex 
phenomena in nature. Uh, there's no, sometimes it's hard to find universal phenomenon, uh, particularly when it comes to diseases, because even between different sites, things can look a little different. But um, this is why we work with veterinarians uh, to come up with case definitions for a particular disease that you can definitively point your finger at and say that's that's that same disease. This is a case defining set of criteria. And, uh, you know, for sea stars, that was absent for most of the investigation. Uh, at the very last minute, we did have one for Pisaster. But uh, for this diadema, we actually started with that, which I think is probably the correct sequence of events for any new disease investigation. And then you can definitively say that, yes, the disease is there. But that just speaks to the complexity of responses and um, complexity of interpreting the environment, which can sometimes be almost impossible. <laughs> so... Yeah, this conversation, you know, sea stars are, and sea urchins are large enough that we, we notice them and growing in places that we notice them readily mm -hmm. and notice their, their dying and their absence when they disappear quickly. But it, it does make me, especially in, in light of our earlier conversation about the diversity of viruses that was previously unknown prior to these developments in technology that allowed you to really look into that more thoroughly is just how much these sorts of things are happening throughout the throughout the ecology you know probably it, it especially i should say at small scales and small things that that are easily overlooked by us um, being well outside our sort of standard scale of of attention totally. uh, and yeah, just how much how much might be going on that we don't know about in the deep ocean or in the you know in the plankton you know, could whole 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 things could be shifting in plankton I suppose that would be easy for us to overlook and yet then maybe trickle down or trickle up as the case may be into into the the more macro macro uh, organisms that that we're familiar with and sort of mis mysterious things change and we don't really know why. Yep. You're only going to see what you're looking for. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time here. Anything you want to mention before we wrap up? No, just wanted to say, um, you know, keep your eyes out. Uh, if you're out there in the wild and you see any uh, disease, things that look up normal, make sure that you let uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game know, uh, because again, you know, you're going to overlook things unless people report them. And very often, uh, you know, fish and game don't have the opportunity to, to see them. Uh, they're on a smaller scale or uh, perhaps they're going to not be looking in the sites in which you might be observing. So, um, and I look forward to uh, performing more research in Sitka when the opportunity arises. And um, yeah, I hope everyone stays safe out there. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Ian Hewson. He was joining me from New York, and I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.